a quick note on today's show before we get started. You may notice us refer to the show as the Infectious Dialogue Podcast. This was our working name before the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We decided to change the name to the ID Podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about why we did that, please listen to episode zero. If not, enjoy the show. I'm Mike, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gurinder. Welcome to Infectious Dialogue, a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by McMaster Medical Students, where listening is the best medicine. Today, we dive into the world of cannabis. Cannabis. When recreational use was legalized in Canada in 2018, it dominated national headlines with mixed reception. It's a polarizing topic laden with a bunch of misconceptions. Hopefully, we can sort through them for you guys today. Depending on who you talk to, it's either a panacea or a threat to public order and safety. As it's faded from front page status, it's quietly seeped into our lives with growing use, especially among university students. And here to help us navigate some complex topics about cannabis use are Dr. Catherine Munn and Jillian Holliday, our two guests for this episode. Dr. Munn is a practicing psychiatrist who, in more recent stages of her career, developed an interest in mental health and substance abuse in young adults, especially post-secondary students. Jillian is completing her PhD with Dr. Munn in Health Research Methodology at McMaster while working also as a nurse at McMaster Children's Hospital Inpatient Mental Health Unit. One thing that I really took away from listening to this interview is that cannabis is not really one single entity. Um, What we define as cannabis is really interesting. There's over 500 active molecules that are uh, making up the cannabis plant and really understanding what each of those molecules does is uh, an active area of research. That's true, Grinder, and a very important point to keep in mind. Aside from THC and CBD, the big ones that we always talk about, cannabis can be a mixed bag, which means that we should be wary of blanket statements when there's marketing promotion around it. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to keep in mind how safe is cannabis really? What are the medical indications for use? What are some dubious ethical practices surrounding its distribution? What are some potential risks to keep in mind for first-time users? Without further ado, here's our production director, Daniel Borens, interviewing Dr. Catherine Munn and Jillian Halliday. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for listening. My name is Daniel Borens. I'm one of the um, production directors for the Infectious Dialogue radio show. And I'm very excited and fortunate today because I am with um, two very experienced uh, both researchers and healthcare workers revolving around cannabis use. So with me today, I have uh, Dr. Catherine Munn and uh, Jillian Halliday. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, and one thing that's really exciting about this um, podcast, I'm not sure which episode number this will be, but this is the first interview that uh, Infectious Dialogue, which is a new medical school radio show that we're starting. So this is the first interview that we're doing, which is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. So I think first for the audience and our listeners, um, why don't you uh, tell us a bit about your background and your work and your work involving uh, cannabis use and research on cannabis use. So Catherine, if you want to start. 
Indeed. So to start, I am a McMaster Medical School graduate, and I did my residency in psychiatry at McMaster as well. And subsequent to my residency, I moved into work in emergency psychiatry and then pretty quickly into the post-secondary environment, practicing collaborative care with family doctors and counselors as a psychiatrist in the Student Wellness Centre at McMaster. And I did that for 16 years until very recently. Over the course of the last few years, I've gotten more involved in um, research in a number of different areas. And one of the areas that's been of interest is is mental health and uh, substance use, especially cannabis use and alcohol use uh, among post-secondary students and transition-aged youth, so referring to 18 to 25-year-olds in particular. And so Jillian and I have done uh, a number of projects together, and she has done a number of projects uh, as part of her PhD work uh, that are that are in the area of cannabis and alcohol use in young adults, uh, which we're happy to, to talk about today. Uh, I'm also a member of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research here at McMaster, and we're also part of the, um, the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Uh, so in those in those uh, institutes, we, we also interact with lots of folks doing all sorts of different work around cannabis from recreational to um, to medicinal uses and happy to touch on some of those if that's of interest today but but mostly I'm a clinician who worked with lots of young adults in who were using cannabis okay amazing thank you so much Catherine and I think one thing that I also just learned that you you told me was that you also are a uh, teacher for medical students mm-hmm. uh, so if you could share a bit about what you do with uh, med students Yes, so I'm also just started this year actually as a uh, tutor in the professional competency program. So big shout out to my group <laughs> who I love and my co-tutor Ian DeGear. Uh, so yeah, very happy to be talking regularly to med students every week about professional competency and issues like substance abuse and ethics and and in ways really in which actually this topic even can can relate to to student medical students and in their training. Well, that's fantastic. So thank you, Catherine. All right, uh, Jillian, why don't you introduce yourself? Awesome. Thanks again for having us. So I did my undergraduate degree in nursing at McMaster, and then I've been working as a nurse on the child and youth mental health inpatient unit at McMaster Children's Hospital for the past four and a half years. Uh, I also did a master's in clinical epidemiology at McMaster in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. And during my master's, I focused on the co-occurrence of cannabis use and mental health concerns in the Canadian population and how that co-occurrence has changed over time. And then now I'm in the midst of my PhD, again, in health research methodology, where I'm focusing on that co-occurrence of substance use and mental health concerns, mainly cannabis and alcohol use, and mainly among youth, but looking at it from both a general population perspective, as well as like a clinical population perspective of youth that come to the hospital with mental health concerns, for example. Amazing. So that's also some fantastic work. So I'm so excited to talk to both of you today about uh, what you've been working on, both as a clinician or nurse and in uh, as a researcher. Uh, and one reason why I picked this topic um, for one of our episodes is because I am always very interested in learning about um, substance abuse and the risks of certain substances. And one of the Things I've often heard uh, centering around cannabis is that it's a lot safer than other 
types of substances. And that's especially floated around in the past few years, ever since it was uh, legalized, I believe, in 2018. Yes, October 2018 is when it was nationally <laughs> legalized in Canada. But there has definitely been uh, changes kind of preceding that in Canada. So mm -hmm. it became medicinally legal in 2001 in Canada. And then there's also been kind of legalization and decriminalization in various other places around the world outside of Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, so like you've probably felt and heard, there has been dramatic changes in public perception, but that's kind of spanned over the past two decades mm -hmm. because there's been so many different conversations about legalization, decriminalization, medicinal use. So there's been like a dramatic spike in so social acceptability mm -hmm. and a reduction in the perceived risks associated with using it both occasionally and regularly. Mm -hmm. And I think also the dialogue has, has gotten complicated because of sort of the simultaneous or very close in time um, use of cannabis for medicinal purposes mm -hmm. at the same time yes. as it was legalized for recreational use. Mm -hmm. So many of the messages have gotten very mixed and confused as they've gone out to the public in terms of the safety of cannabis. Safety both in terms of its medical safety for medical indications, but also its safety as a recreational drug. And I think it's it's fair to say that cannabis as compared to some other drugs and even to alcohol in some respects uh, maybe may be safer. For example, it's certainly compared to alcohol, it would certainly be safer in terms of the effect on the liver. But we have mm -hmm. to think about sort of what type of safety we're talking about when we talk about health, mm -hmm. the health and safety effects of cannabis and in whom we're talking about that. So are we talking about that for somebody with a medical condition who's using it for pain? Are we talking about it for a 14-year-old? Are we talking about it for a 25-year-old or a 50-year-old? So I think the, the, the safety and the health risks are different for both medicinal and recreational, depending on the groups that you're mm -hmm. referring to. So it's a hard question when people say, is cannabis safe? <laughs> it's not a question we like to answer. <laughs> I also don't think we have, we don't have the answers yet. It's mm -hmm. very, in terms of where our conversations and where policy is, mm -hmm. is far ahead of where the research is. We actually don't have the answers to be able to actually directly answer questions that people are talking about or to support things that people are saying in both directions, in both potential benefits mm -hmm. and potential harms. I also just wanted to add on in terms of comparing to alcohol and tobacco, those two substances are legal, but they're also the leading causes of morbidity and mortality worldwide, uh, like compared to anything. Mm -hmm. So it may not be as bad or <laughs> harmful as those, but those are some of the worst things that we have right now. Mm -hmm. So in terms of those comparisons, those are pretty dramatic comparisons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. And often, often, as you say, it's being compared to another substance mm -hmm. versus being compared to not using. Oh, mm -hmm. right. So that, right. you know, it's really not that useful, as Jillian's pointing out, a debate to say, is it safer than X or safer than Y? It's really mm -hmm. thinking about what is its safety profile in general? Because often what we also know is that people that use cannabis recreationally often just don't just use cannabis. Mm -hmm. So often mm -hmm. we know that, that sort of using other substances along with cannabis is actually more the norm than using cannabis alone. So most people who use cannabis also use other substances like, like cigarettes, nicotine, or vaping, 
or and alcohol and or other substances. So it's it's not as clean as one would paint it to be. Um, and often you have to think about the methods of use and all mm-hmm. sorts of other factors in terms of looking at a safety and health profile for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So a lot to unpack in this episode. And hopefully we can try to clear up some of the messaging for mm-hmm. our, our listeners. Uh, so I think just um, briefly, why don't we talk a bit about you mentioned uh, that there's um, the legality of the recreational use uh, kind of co-occurred with the legality of the medicinal use. So would you be able to speak a bit about um, some of the medicinal uses or indications for uh, cannabis? Sure. Um, so like I had mentioned, it has been legal in Canada since uh, 2001. However, we really don't have tons of evidence to back up the potential therapeutic effects of cannabis. So the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, medicinal cannabis is something that is authorized. It's not prescribed. So it's not a typical prescription drug. It's not FDA approved. Mm. It's not the same composition of cannabis in a specific biochemical profile every time you go get your medicinal cannabis. So it's not the same as a prescribed drug, just to keep in mind. Um, And there's also been a lot of limitations in terms of if and how we can study cannabis, even though it has been medicinally legal, it's not recreationally legal. So a lot of the studies Mm. on the therapeutic effectiveness aren't on what people actually get as medicinal cannabis. So There are a number of FDA-approved drugs that are based on either synthetic THC, which is one component of cannabis that's primarily responsible for the psychoactive high portion of cannabis. So there are some um, actual FDA-approved drugs based on a synthetic version of that. Um, There's also some drugs that are just pure THC, that psychoactive component, and CBD, which is another component that we typically talk about with cannabis um, that is a in a drug purified form, but that's not what you typically get when you're getting medicinal cannabis. Mm. So uh, there's over 500 ingredients in your regular cannabis, and we've really only begun to research two of those 500 ingredients. Um, So we do have some um, evidence of potential therapeutic benefits for medicinal cannabis use. The most is for neuropathic non-cancer chronic pain, so a very specific type of pain, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, um, spasticity in multiple sclerosis. There's some but very limited evidence potentially for like PTSD or anxiety and insufficient evidence for things like cancer, epilepsy, addiction and actually evidence of ineffectiveness Mm. for depression it's we have some there's some indicators that this might be therapeutic it is definitely not first-line treatment for anything Mm -hmm. right now Um, but this lack of existing evidence doesn't necessarily mean it's not effective we just don't have great evidence right now to support it so uh, because again, it's been based on purified types of cannabinoids, not what people are typically using and reporting that they're experiencing benefits from. So we have a lot of anecdotal reports that it's beneficial, but we don't have the scientific evidence to back up most of those claims right now. But again, that lack of evidence doesn't mean lack of lack of effectiveness, Mm -hmm. but we also can't prove what combinations of those ingredients in what way of delivering those ingredients in what people are effective. So it's like quite a complicated and a messy situation. 
Yeah. And just to reiterate, really, that right now, while many people will say they're using cannabis medicinally for the treatment of anxiety or depression or PTSD, there is really no clear indication that it is effective Mm -hmm. and um, effective in treating those conditions. It should never be considered a first-line treatment for any mental health disorder at this Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we know certainly that it puts... uh, particular groups at increased risk for psychosis. So in particular, we know we know that uh, cannabis use is associated with the development of schizophrenia uh, in young adults. And so you have to think very carefully uh, about medicinal as well as recreational cannabis in the context of its use for mental health disorders. You'll also think yeah, I hear people talk about its use to treat other substance use disorders, like mm. opioid use disorders. Again, <clears throat> the evidence is mixed, and currently I don't think we could say there is any indication that cannabis should be used as a treatment for opioid use disorder, uh, in my current understanding of the state of that research. So a lot of things, you, you'll you see cannabis being advertised pretty much for every human condition and vet- many veterinary conditions. <laughs> You'll see, you know, mm-hmm. give cannabis or THC or what whatever compound to your dog and it will help them <laughs> with their uh, joint pain. A lot of these, much of this is is simply the same kind of marketing rhetoric that we heard around can uh, around tobacco, like thirty to forty years ago. When you when you compare the kind mm-hmm. of advertising that we're seeing now for these products, it looks virtually identical to what used to be said about tobacco. Like, it's safe. It helps you breathe better. It helps you feel better. It helps you be more energetic. It helps you relax. Do they also recommend giving tobacco to your pets? Well, they recommended giving it to... any, but I actually have that advertisement in front of me. It's kind of funny that you said that. Um, but they said it effectively treated asthma, hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, head colds, <laughs> canker sores, and bronchial irritations. But it's not recommended for children under six. That was tobacco? Okay. That was tobacco. That tobacco. So if, yeah. you're, <laughs> if you just turned six uh, back then, I guess uh, present is a uh, first Pack of Marlboros. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the marketing is something that is very interesting to watch and very powerful. Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, in talking about cannabis, it's very difficult to have a conversation about cannabis without people spouting a lot of myths, which are mm-hmm. really coming directly out of the mouths of marketers who are trying to sell us a product, whether that mm-hmm. be a medicinal product through a, uh, a medicinal cannabis product or mm-hmm. company, or whether it be through a recreational cannabis company, uh, or even in fact, sometimes what, when it comes from providers. So I think we've done not the greatest job in Canada on the, the medicinal, the oversight of the uh, mm-hmm. medicinal cannabis. So we have a lot of fly-by-night clinics uh, who are in the business of prescribing medicinal cannabis. Mm. And I think if we look deeper into those clinics, their motivations, and the work they're doing, it is very uneven. So that's not to say that all clinics prescribing medicinal cannabis are doing <clears throat> are doing a poor job. Mm-hmm. Not at all. There are some very reputable clinics that uh, have a much better sense of the literature and abide by kind of evidence-based principles as they as they determine treatment for people that require cannabis for medical indications. But then you have a whole lot of other clinics that operate in ways that are 
quite concerning and are largely unregulated. Mm-hmm. And so we have many situations that you'll have students have described to me over the years in young adults where they'll say, you know, I just say didn't want to pay for my recreational cannabis anymore. So I got a medical medicinal cannabis prescription. I went into a store. They linked me up by video link to a physician remotely who then approved me <laughs> for my medicinal cannabis for the indication of depression. Mm-hmm. We can point out in multiple points along that trajectory right. of the flaws of that. Mm-hmm. One, it's not; it should not be indicated or given for depression. Two, mm-hmm. should we be evaluating that without knowledge of the person's substance use and mental health history and their history of addiction, mm-hmm. which is often not being covered in those encounters. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people taking advantage of uncertainty in the medicinal environment it's pretty concerning mm-hmm. um, as a physician when you're trying to, you know, as a future physician, when you're trying to kind of figure out how to navigate this stuff, mm-hmm. what, you know, what are you supposed to say to somebody that comes into your office and says, I think medicinal cannabis is a good idea for me. So what are you going to say to that? Where are you going to send them? Do you have a, a reputable partner that you can refer them to? Those are all like really important questions to think mm-hmm. about in pretty much every field of medicine right now. There's really no field I think you're probably safe, maybe pathology. <laughs> where are you safe from having that question about, you know, where should I go for an opinion about getting medicinal cannabis? Mm-hmm. Every specialty is having to re- wrestle with that mm-hmm. from okay. orthopedics to surgery to oncology to psychiatry. Mm-hmm. There are recommendations for healthcare professionals right now by Health Canada, but I think they're a little outdated now. I think there's 27 from 2017, mm-hmm. which there definitely has been a lot more research since then. But based on those right now, their recommendations are to Uh, recommend against prescribing for or authorizing for individuals who have a family or personal history of mental health disorders or substance use Mm -hmm. disorders or who are under the age of 25, which are typically the people that are potentially asking Mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So that sounds like uh, I can I can definitely understand why, especially with the legalization of marijuana, that um, as soon as people be, feel more comfortable with that, when you add medicinal to it, it kind of opens up that door where people see it as more acceptable. And it's uh, unfortunate to hear about the kind of flyover or fly-by-night kind of clinics. Mm-hmm. So I think now um, I want to talk to you about recreational use of cannabis. So let's say um, someone is about to use uh, cannabis for the first time. They're about to you know, smoke it, for example. What are some short-term risks that people who are trying uh, cannabis for the first time should be aware of? It kind of in part depends on what type of cannabis they use and how they're using it. So like I had mentioned before, cannabis is composed of over 500 different ingredients. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now we've focused mainly on two. So that THC, that psychoactive component and CBD, which isn't thought to have any psychoactive properties, but can kind of offset some of the effects of THC. Uh, So we've begun to talk about those and understand those in terms of higher THC, you get more of a psychoactive high, you've got a higher potent product, but it also depends on the level of CBD in your product too. Uh, So in part, your 
initial effects of cannabis will depend on how much THC is in your product and how how much CBD. Mm-hmm. Your typical recreational product is high in THC and low in CBD. Okay. Um, and it has been increasing over the years. So prior to legalization, it went from about like 4% as your average THC in I think the 90s up to 20% in like the recent years prior to legalization oh, wow. with a, a subs or a, a drop in CBD alongside mm-hmm. that as well. So we've had that increasingly potent product over time. But when we do talk about kind of the initial short-term effects or feeling high from cannabis, it's typically associated with altered and enhanced senses, an altered sense of time, changes in mood, impairments in body movement and coordination, difficulty thinking prob- and problem solving, impairments in your memory, and if in high doses, sometimes hallucinations, delusions, and psychosis. Um, in those short-term effects of cannabis. But again, that's predominantly based on how much THC Mm -hmm. is in your product. Mm -hmm. And what about, um, so what does the THC do? I know it involves cannabinoids uh, in the brain. So I was wondering Mm -hmm. if maybe you could just uh, talk a bit about that for anyone um, like myself who isn't 100% clear about uh, how THC causes those effects. All right. So um, (laughs) our body, so you have your own natural endocannabinoid system that's found all around your body. Um, But in the brain, it's found particularly in areas associated with motivation, emotional learning, learning and memory, and emotionality and higher cognitive functioning. So specific areas being the cortex, the striatum, the amygdala, hippocampus. This natural endocannabinoid system also plays a pretty key role in how the brain responds to stress, like the HPA axis in the brain, the reward and addiction pathways in the brain, as well as in how the brain develops. So we do have our own natural endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. So we have our own natural cannabinoids that act on that system. Um, But our natural system is really tightly regulated. So our brain creates cannabinoids as we need them, but destroys them as soon as we don't need them anymore. So when we have an exogenous cannabinoid like THC coming into the system, it's still kind of a pre-established system that we have, but it binds much stronger and lasts much longer in the system, which can overstimulate all of these pathways in the brain. Mm. And then with chronic and repeated use can potentially lead to structural and functional changes to those parts of the brain that are associated with responding to stress, with motivation, with emotional rewards, et cetera. So it's acting on a part of the brain that we already have. Okay. Um, Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of overstimulating that part of the brain, which is usually really tightly regulated. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know um, people, uh, you know, who smoke marijuana, cannabis, kind of like often. So at what point um, do you kind of define it from being occasional recreational use to it becoming a cannabis use disorder? So really, I mean, I think that's a super interesting question in and of itself, actually, in terms of what what do we call low risk use? Mm -hmm. What do we call higher risk use? And I think in alcohol, for example, we have pretty clear guidelines now. We know we can sort of clearly tell people that if you're a female and you're drinking more than 10 drinks a week, a male and drinking more than 15 drinks a week, or if you're drinking more than five drinks in any one episode of drinking, that would be considered a binge, sometimes four for women, five for men. So we're, we're quite clear. We can actually give people that feedback that that puts you into a high risk category from a low risk, not a no risk, but a low <laughs> risk category because
because no risk means not using. Mm-hmm. Low risk means those guidelines and alcohol and, and above that would be considered higher risk. The trouble in cannabis is that really we're in our infancy of trying to figure out what what makes for problematic use. Mm-hmm. The same level of use in one person can cause a problem, uh, whereas that that and that's whereas this, the same level of use in two different people can lead to different consequences and outcomes. And we really have not clearly established uh, what's a safe limit for cannabis use, especially in young people. So especially mm-hmm. in sort of the under 25, it's really unclear what's a safe amount, if any, of cannabis mm-hmm. uh, for, that, for that age group, but also even above 25. We, we can't clearly say, is it okay if you use it once a week, once a month, five days a week? We're pretty clear now that using more days than not and using every day is associated with a much higher risk of, of cannabis use consequences or difficulties or addiction. Uh, but we really, we don't know within that mid zone in particular, where, you know, at what level uh, we, I'm not phrasing that so super well, but <laughs> we, we, we don't have a clear indication of the frequency that we mm-hmm. should recommend. Mm-hmm. I just want to add to that really quickly. Again, it, we I keep coming back to this, but there's 500 ingredients. <laughs> so it's also the how potent is the product that you're using. Right. So mm-hmm. the higher potent your product is, that seems to be related to more problems. But we also have 400 plus other ingredients that we haven't fully begun to kind of understand yet or their interactions with THC. Also, that endocannabinoid system uh, develops and functions differently in biological males compared to biological mm-hmm. females. So it also seems to be in part sex dependent in terms of um, how the effects of cannabis. And then as uh, Dr. Munn alluded to, the developing brain. So the brain is still developing. And since that endocannabinoid system plays such a key role in how the brain develops, is cannabis use going to negatively impact in the long term how the brain develops, um, even in smaller doses like Dr. Munn had mentioned? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a very interesting discussion, Grinder. I couldn't agree more, Mike. So it seems like, in short, the answer to all our questions is that, really, it depends. As Jillian mentions, with over 500 ingredients, the risks and safety profiles of cannabis depends on the biochemical composition of that particular unit of cannabis that you get. Absolutely, and I think that really highlights how muddled the conversation is on cannabis. It's really difficult to be using blanket statements about the substance. Even understanding how much usage is appropriate really depends on the person and the place and the time. Um, So when having these conversations in our daily lives, especially as young medical professionals, I think it's really important that we avoid these blanket statements as the take-home message. In part two of this episode, we'll further discuss research directions and what we know so far. In that vein, if you're interested in research, we've linked some projects about cannabis intervention programs from Dr. Munn and Jillian on our website. And before we sign off, we just wanted to quickly thank all the members of the Infectious Dialogue team, a bunch of wonderfully talented and creative people who have worked hard to put this together. For this episode, we'd like to thank our episode director and host, Daniel Borens, and his creative team of Cynthia Chan, Jessica Jung, and Jenny Zhu. And of course, thank you to Dr. Mun and Jillian, our guests today. Stay tuned for part two.